Thank you for listening to the Collective Church Podcast. Collective is a church for the rest of us. That means if you've never been to church, if you walked away from church, or have struggled to find a church home, we were started for you. For more information about Collective and how to join us on a Sunday morning, please head to www.mycollective.church. Last year, for a few weeks, we looked at the life of a guy named David. David is from the Old Testament, and the biggest thing that David is known for is being a man after God's own heart. Last year, we looked at David primarily as he was a youth and a child and as he was growing up. And if you know the story, David grew up to become a king. So if you weren't with us last year, or if you forgot even what you talked about last year, let's catch up real quick so we're all on the same page. The story starts when David was the same age as a middle school boy is today. And there's a dude named Samuel who goes to David's house. Samuel is what is known as a prophet, which just very simply means God talks to Samuel, and then Samuel takes that message to all the people. So God talks to Samuel, and Samuel says, hey, go to David's house. And the reason why is you're going to anoint a new king. I want you to pick who I'm going to tell you to pick and anoint them as the new king. So Samuel shows up, a very important person at David's dad's house. His name is Jesse. And he says, hey, we're going to have a sacrifice today. Conveniently leaves out that whole just minor detail about picking a new king. He says, gather your whole entire family. We're going to have a sacrifice. So Jesse gathers all of his sons and Samuel's there and Jesse's there and the sons are all starting to come in and, and uh, Samuel just kind of knows when I see one of these sons, God is going to tell me who is going to be king. And the reason that it's only a sacrifice and Samuel's not mentioning the king bit is because there's already an established king. So, therefore, if there's an established king, they have to have an excuse as to why they're having this secret meeting so they can anoint a new king without the established king already knowing. So 1 Samuel 16, verses 6 and 7 tell us this. When they arrived, they being all of Jesse's boys, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his height or his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So six sons later, the whole kind of process continues. One son comes in, nope, that's not it. Next son comes in, nope, that's not it. All of the sons that are there have kind of come and gone before Samuel, and he doesn't know any of them to be the king. And so there's this little bit of awkward moment, and Samuel looks at Jesse, and he's like, hey, uh, do you have any more kids by chance that you might have forgotten about? And Jesse looks around and, oh, yes, there is one more, but he's just David. He's out there in the field with the sheep and the goats. Jesse looks around, realizes that his youngest son is there, carries on this special ceremony without him because he's just the youngest of the runt and he's out there with the lowest of the low taking care of the sheep. Jesse doesn't even consider his own son to be worthy of being at this ceremony. 1 Samuel 16 tells us, though, Samuel has a different idea. Samuel, when learning this, he says, send for him at once. We will not sit down until he arrives. So Jesse sent for him. He was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. And the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. 
So as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had, anointed David with the oil, and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. And what's really interesting about this is that Samuel just leaves. There is no indication in the Bible that Samuel says, hey, this is why I anointed this kid. He just leaves. And so the family is expecting a ceremony that never happens. The youngest one comes in, get a bunch of old dumped on his head, and the really important person leaves. And if you follow the timeline of the story, you know about 18 months later, David kills Goliath. And after that happens, his life takes off in crazy ways that are really hard for us to imagine. But all of this comes from a kid who cut his teeth being a shepherd. Being a shepherd was a job for boys usually reserved for the youngest boy in the family. As the older ones grew, they took on what was seen as more important roles, usually around harvesting crops. If you grew crops and they passed on the duties of being a shepherd down to the youngest one. So it was just passed down through the line until it finally got to David's turn. There's a guy named Randy Alcorn, and he writes for Eternal Perspective Ministries, and he says that every shepherd would have a few things with them. The first one was called an Abba, A-B-A, and it's just simply an outer garment that they wear. It protects them from the rain when the rain comes, and at night they can wrap up with it and keep warm. They carry a bag of food for several days because they know it's going to be a long period of time before they get to come home again, and they, and usually they alone or just a small group of people, are responsible for the flock. Every shepherd also carried a sling. We know it as a slingshot. David killed Goliath with a sling. The reason that David was so good and so accurate with that sling is because it was a part of what every shepherd used. It was usually not used in violence or self-defense, but it was something to help keep the flock going where you wanted them to go. A good shepherd Notice the sheep would start to stray or maybe a straggling behind and they would get that sling and they would throw that rock right next to the sheep, not hit it, startle that sheep. It gets scared and it comes back to the flock. It was one of the tools that they had. Shepherds were responsible for the food and water for their sheep. This meant planning in advance and knowing where you could find food for several days in summer and winter as well as water but you also have to know that sheep don't like moving bodies of water, so you need to know where some still, calm pools of water are. As you can see, this is more than just what it seems. Common sense to me would just be like, let the sheep go out and let them around and then just bring them back home at the end of the day. It's not that hard. But a shepherd's job is actually very difficult, and the relationship, relationship between shepherd and sheep was a very intimate relationship. It was not uncommon for shepherds to name all of the sheep in their flock and call them by that name for the rest of their life. Sheep are not like dogs, which by the way, thank goodness for that, because who likes dogs anyways? Sorry if it's your first day here. I work it into every sermon. Actually, I'm not that sorry. Um, they're not like dogs. They can't find their way back home. If a sheep wanders off, it's gone, usually devoured by a wild animal. This is why the shepherd's voice is so important in the relationship. You and I could go say the exact same thing a shepherd says, the same way that they, they say it, but it has no effect. 
The sheep don't know your voice. They don't know my voice. But sheep listen to the voice of the shepherd, and they come when the shepherd calls. The bond is so deep that in places like Lebanon, it has been said, shepherds will tell you, you blindfold me, bring a sheep in front of my face. All I have to do is touch that sheep's face, and I can tell you this is my sheep or it's not. That's how deep and intimate the bond is between a shepherd and their flock. Sheep in general are pretty defenseless animals and are dependent upon their shepherd to take care of them, and they're always subject to danger from other people and from other animals as well. A guy named John Whitting wrote a piece for National Geographic describing the life of a shepherd in ancient times. And he said one of the things they had to constantly deal with was robbers trying to steal the sheep. And at night, they would make a makeshift pen, and the robbers, hopefully when the shepherd was sleeping, would climb the walls of that pen, grab the sheep, and gruesome details here, they would slit their throats, throw them over the wall to their friends, and try to escape with as many of those sheep as they could without being caught. Literally, they would try to steal and kill and destroy the shepherd's flock. Wolves may attack. David, David himself tells a story as a 12 or 13-year-old kid how he kills a lion and a bear on separate occasion, defending his flock as a 12 or 13-year-old boy. I think I would pee my pants and then not know what to do after that. I went to college down in Tennessee, down in the Appalachian Mountains, and the rumor mill came back to campus that there was a bear that had favorited a local camp and was hanging out there at night. And all of us heard about this and a bunch of guys being the 19 and 20 year olds that we were thinking we're really smart and wanting some dumb adventure said, let's go. So we hop in the cars, there's like 10 or 12 of us and we hop in the cars and we drive to the camp and we're walking around camp for a couple of hours trying to find a bear. We were out there and I realized We didn't bring anything to protect us. Like, if this bear actually shows up, this is bad news. What are we going to do if we actually run into this thing? I guess I can only think to, like, trip the dude next to me and start taking off really fast for the cars because I'm making it out alive. Sorry. But David is killing bears as a 12 or 13-year-old kid just by himself because that's part of his job. When you realize all of this, you might think to yourself, Why would anybody sign up to do this job? Nobody does actually sign up, but a long, long time ago, being a shepherd, it wasn't just like a thing, it was the thing to do. If you read the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, it talks about how there are many people who have a large, large number of flocks. Even wealthy men's sons were shepherd, which meant that it was a respectable job. People enjoyed and took pride in that job. But eventually, the people in the Old Testament, the first part of the Bible, they moved away from what is present-day Israel and migrated to what is now present-day Egypt for a whole lot of reasons we don't have time to get into today, but they moved to a new place and a new culture, and they found themselves surrounded by the Egyptians. The Egyptians had a completely different way of life. All of a sudden, being a nomad wasn't cool anymore. Egyptians had established cities, 
first service, I just kind of breezed right through that term, established cities, and it comes out very differently and very awkwardly as the speaker. You can just let that one run in your mind, but that was just a nice little verbal slip in first service. But they had established cities. They did not like shepherds. See, this meant to them, shepherds, flocks moving in, it was a loss to their crops. And a loss of crop meant a loss of money. And a loss of money means a loss of my livelihood. So therefore, I don't like you, shepherds. The first murder ever actually occurred between a shepherd and a farmer. It's in the book of Genesis chapter 4 if you want to read it. Cain killed Abel. The Bible tells us Cain worked the soul. He was a farmer. Abel was in charge of flocks. Read the rest of it. But farmers and shepherds have been going at it for ages and ages. They're like the real Hatfields and McCoys. The Egyptians very much looked down on shepherds. They saw the meat as not worthy to be eaten. They saw the sheep itself as not worthy of a sacrifice. The Egyptians' enemies right next to them were shepherds. In that same book of Genesis, there's a guy named Joseph, and he's talking to his brothers, describing Egyptian culture to them. And he says, every shepherd is detestable to the Egyptians. So when you live in that surrounding environment for 400 years, you adopt the way the Egyptians think. So shepherding went from being a cool thing to a thing to a thing that you have to do and literally was the bottom of the social structure in that society. David's job was as bad as it could possibly get. In just a minute, we're going to catch back up with David, and the verse that we're going to read kind of sets the scene of how we want to take the rest of our message today, but this is kind of the opening scene to where David even has a chance to be in battle with Goliath to kill him in the first place. David is doing his job being a shepherd, and then he brings food to his brothers who are encamped waiting for a battle between their army and Goliath's army. Nobody wants to fight this big, scary Goliath guy, so everybody's just kind of sitting around. David shows up, and he starts asking questions. He's just curious, and he wants to know, and so he's asking questions of the fellow army members about what's going on. His older brother hears this, and then this is what he has to say to little brother David. 1 Samuel 17, verses 28. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. You hear the words... But think about the message behind the words. Hey, you little kid, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. Who do you think you are? You're not a soldier. You're not a warrior. This is for the big boys. Leave us to our jobs and get out of here. You don't belong here. Maybe his brother is jealous. After all, Eliab would have been considered the natural one to be appointed as king. He was the oldest and he was very tall. Two things that were working in his favor. And so when David was anointed as king, maybe some jealousy crept in. But Eliab, older brother, knew to hit David right where it would hurt. Taking everything back to his label, his shepherding job. He knew that that is not something that was respected. So he hit him where it hurts, and he publicly humiliated him in front of other men. The thing about labels is 
Labels stick way longer than we ever want them to. And if we're being really honest, if I'm being really honest, labels hurt. And how people talk about us and how people talk about me, it hurts. David knew he had a terrible job. He was a shepherd. He knew at that time that nobody respected him. He was a shepherd. It was his label in life. So what about you? What have you labeled yourself with or have other people labeled you with that you start to actually believe about yourself? Cheater, drunk, juggy, divorced, still single, can't get a job, can't get a real job, not going to amount to anything, really crappy parent, disabled, gay, lesbian, disappointment, embarrassment, nobody. What's your shepherd? What's your title? What's your label that you believe about yourself? See, this is where it goes from just some words on a page in a book from way, way, way long ago to right here into our living room. And for some of us, it starts smacking us in the face because we can really identify with this because people have put labels on us and we believe things about ourselves that are just simply not true. Here at Collective, we embrace this idea of grace and truth and we talk about grace and truth a lot. Maybe you believe your label and you make, it makes it very hard to show up here. The one place where you should feel most comfortable, it makes it very hard to be here because you think that you didn't follow the rules good enough and God doesn't love me and I didn't do this right. Maybe you've been in places before surrounded by Christian people where they don't make you feel like you belong here. Grace is God wants to take that label and do really awesome things with it. I've told you in the past a stigma that dogged me for years and years that almost ruined my relationship with Rachel, my wife, before it ever started, is that I was a player. And she didn't even want to go on that first date. About that same time in life, I was struggling trying to figure out where I wanted to be and who I wanted to be professionally. And all of those questions lead to a hard time finding a job at all, let alone finding a job that I enjoyed. And so I was finishing up my master's degree, and I was getting a storytelling master's, which sounds really cool, but is marketable to absolutely nobody. So it was a little bit of a tough time finding a job, and I sat down with the president's wife of our undergrad institution. She was my boss when I was a student worker in the landscaping department. I asked her, I said, can I please take you out to lunch, and can you help me? And she paid, of course, because I was a poor, broke young man. Um, and she got me in contact. And that contact led to an interview, which led to a job. And so very quickly, I had this decision to make. Do I take this job, which was with Pepsi, which in East Tennessee would have made me a pretty good living? Or do I do what I want to do, sell all my stuff, move halfway around the world, go to East Africa and do missionary work? And I had this dilemma that I was working through and I asked a lot of people about it because on one side I was like, well, I know it's a job, I have student loans, I need to start paying these things back and get rid of them, but I wanna go, my heart says go to East Africa. And I asked a lot of people, including one person who was a mentor 
I sat down with her. I'd known her for years. I said, hey, listen, this is my situation. I'm looking for advice. What do you want me to do? What advice do you have? And she said, CT, I think it's time for you to finally be a real adult, put on your big boy pants, and get a big boy job. And I walked away, and that hurt. Like, that stung. And this was a person who knew me well that I really trusted. And it stung even more because it came from them. It wasn't just the message. It was the message behind the message. Immature. Lazy. Not good enough. Not productive. And I went back and I went away from that. And I was like, wait, what about the last three or four years of my life? Was that not good enough? And that label kind of started to stick with me. And I believed it. That was my shepherd label. And labels and words have this mammoth way of sticking to us, no matter how hard we try to avoid them. That old saying that you say as kids all the time, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words may never hurt me. It's a lie. It's a terrible, terrible lie. And we all know this to be true, including David, because he had a label that his brother ridiculed him in in front of other people to try to keep him in that place. But this is proof of how great God is. If you are a Christian, maybe you've already experienced this before in the past. If you are a non-Christian or if you are skeptical of God, what we're about to discover is one of the ways that makes God so cool and what he does with our story, our past, and our labels. I'm going to move us through the life of David just a little bit and fast forward us to get to a point of importance. So David kills Goliath. The current king, Saul, gets extremely jealous because all the people want David to be king. So David has soldiers and Saul has soldiers. David has a chance to kill Saul and he doesn't do it. David's right-hand man has a chance to kill Saul and he doesn't do it. Saul eventually dies in battle. One of his homies is actually uh, one of his sons. His name is Ishbosheth takes Saul's place, and there's a battle between people who are allegiant to David and people who are allegiant to Ishbosheth, and they constantly battle back and forth, back and forth, who's in charge, and in seven years of this discord, finally Ishbosheth is killed, and then there's nobody else to take the kingship except for David. And the entire nation, all of the people come together and they pledge their allegiance to David, which means finally, as an entire nation, we are unified under your leadership, David. And that takes us to 2 Samuel 5, 2, where God is talking to David and the Lord said to you, you will shepherd my people, Israel, and you will become their leader. Not you will lead my people, you will shepherd my people. That word is intentionally chosen for a reason. This thing that everybody thinks is so awful in your life, I'm going to use it and I'm going to make something really cool out of it. Stop trying to destroy your label and let God do something with it. Stop cowering in shame and hiding from everybody who you are. Maybe God doesn't want to get rid of your label. That can be a really hard concept to grasp. I mean, I've got this thing in my life that I can't get rid of, that I want to get rid of so badly. Why doesn't God take it away from me? Maybe God wants to do great things with you through that label. Part of the reason David became such a great king and became known as the man after God's own heart is because he spent time as a shepherd. 
It's very interesting in my own life, my job that I have now, I'm a professor at our local community college here. The guy who could never figure it out, know what he wanted to do in life, works mostly with young people, and part of my job is to help young people figure it out. What do you want to do with your life? It's so ironic. I could never figure it out for myself, and I'm helping other people figure it out now. That's redemption at work. So maybe instead of hiding your crap, your junk, your label, whatever it is, when you feel embarrassed, when you feel disappointment, fill in the blank for you, maybe you should just say, dang right, that's me. Imagine the reaction that you would get. People wouldn't know what to do. You would have their attention. I am fill in the blank. That's me. I'm a shepherd. It's a part of my life story. But you know what? God's doing some really cool things with it, and I'd love to sit down and talk to you about it. What's really crazy about all of this is that when Jesus comes on the scene, years and years after David has come and gone, Jesus describes himself in a variety of ways. One of the ways that Jesus talks about himself is as a shepherd. Redemption of that word, of that title, of that label. I wish we had time to read all of John chapter 10. John chapter 10 is a really, really cool book and closes the chapter of this sermon really well. I want you to read it on your own time. But this is a great way to gain a big understanding of who God is. And we're just going to look at a couple of the highlights here. John 10 verses 3 and 4. This is Jesus talking. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. He calls his own sheep by name. He calls you by name. God knows who you are. He goes out ahead of you, and you follow him because you know his voice. John 10, verses 10 and 11. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Think back to the life of shepherds. Literally, the thieves came to steal and kill and destroy. This is shepherd language that people would understand. He's not referring to thieves now. He is referring to Satan. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 14, again, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. God takes your junk, your label that you believe, and he makes something beautiful out of it if you let him. And I want to close with this. There is one label that applies in my whole entire life that I'm going to carry with me the rest of my life, and you're going to also, and that's the label of sinner. We can't get away from it. That's truth. There is grace in that, but the truth is that we are all sinners, and that is a label that we all carry. But because of what God has done in my life, that is not my only label that I have. It has now been added to it with child of God, loved, blessed, restored, redeemed. And God has done that in my life, and that's grace, something that we openly embrace. That happened because Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I accepted that, and I now live for him and say that Jesus is my Lord and Savior. And the same thing can happen for you if you'll only let Jesus take that label. 
Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you very much for who you are, um, for what we have to learn from a name on a page of a book that was written very, very long ago and how it applies to life now for us. God, I personally thank you that David, the man known after your own heart, presumably somebody who is just like you, needed to be redeemed and restored because I can't identify with that and, and that makes him real to me. And if that happened with him, I know that can happen with me and with everybody in this room too. I pray that we let that happen. It's in your son's name. Amen.